Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the One Million by One Million podcast. I'm here with Greg Borshad, Sarah's Ventures. Uh, Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Shramana. So tell us about Sarah's Ventures. What is your sweet spot? What is the size of the fund? What kind of investments do you like to make? What's the focus? Let's get to know you. Sure. So Kairos Ventures is an early stage uh, venture capital firm. We're based in South Florida, actually. And um, we are a female-owned firm. Uh, We are on our second fund. Uh, We're actually having the first close into our second fund this quarter. Um, And uh, the new fund is a $100 million fund. Um, We, you know, currently are actively... uh, doing diligence on several startups with the expectation of, of you know, uh, investing actively again uh, beginning in early April, although we have warehoused a couple of companies for the new fund. Um, mm-hmm. We are seed and Series A investors, and we actually focus on the connected hardware tech ecosystem. So it's a bit of a differentiated strategy from many of the other VC firms out there, and we feel that it's one where we have, uh, you know, a real competitive advantage. Um, Very interesting. You know, yeah. So in, in terms of just uh, the check size, before I get into more of our investment thesis, uh, we generally will write our first check in a seed round or an A round. A chip, a typical check size, um, you know, can range anywhere. It's a pretty broad range from, say, two to $250,000 up to maybe two to $3 million dollars. And mm-hmm. we'll generally follow on through at least the Series B round. Uh, we do allow um, our larger investors to uh, invest alongside us uh, inside car vehicles uh, so that they can co-invest. Yep. And, uh, you know, if we decide not to do our pro rata amounts uh, after a B round, our, 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 uh, some of our larger LPs maybe, uh, you know, are able to do that. Um, you know, we've really spotted, we feel, a mega trend um, where high-powered, you know, internet-connected or, or I should say cloud-connected uh, computers can be purchased for nearly nothing. Um, you know, so we're, we're seeking to invest in early-stage startup companies, again, at the convergence of hardware and software. Um, so let me probe uh, yeah. that a little bit more, uh, Greg. It sounds fascinating because... Uh, it is you, as you point out. It is a differentiated investment thesis. So I'd like to understand the investment thesis before we go there. I want to ask you about geography. You said you're in Florida. Is that the region where you invest as well, or is the investment more national or global? It, it, it is a national investment. We 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 uh, we do look uh, in North America. Um, we tend to find more companies, uh, I'd say, on the East Coast and in the Midwest and the Southeast. Um, simply because um, while we do have a portfolio company in San Francisco, generally speaking, if some of the West Coast deals are getting to us, unless there's a true strategic fit, um, you know, they're probably not the best deals that we're seeing. Um, We, you know, given our thesis and especially really focusing more on the connected hardware space, and I can delve into that a little bit more. It's not only hardware companies, but kind of all of the companies within that ecosystem, including, you know, uh, uh, software, sensors, big data, et cetera. 
um, you know, are, are being built, not just in Silicon Valley, but uh, are being really built across the United States and across North America. And um, let's then talk about the investment thesis. Uh, you know, what would be really interesting as a starting point to understand your investment thesis is to do some examples. So you, this is your second fund. You've already used this investment thesis and invested in the first, invested your first fund in a bunch of companies. If you could take us through a few examples that illustrate how you think about your investment thesis, how do the companies that you have invested in fit that investment thesis, and what is unique, what is interesting about those companies, that would probably be the best starting point to understand your unique investment thesis. Sure, and to be honest, it's been a bit of, a, of an evolution. Um, our first fund was a, was a smaller fund. It was, in a, in a sense, a fund in which we built our track record, and we took a more generalist approach um, mm-hmm. uh, that that fund uh, was, I believe, the final close on that was approximately three years or four years ago. So we've been making, you know, investments out of that fund over the past three to four years, and we're actually uh, just about fully committed that fund. Uh, we've just been, you know, doing follow-on rounds uh, into our existing portfolio companies at this point. Um, and what we learned in the first fund is that we really um, had an expertise. Uh, in the connected hardware space. Um, my personal background, actually, I, I ran a few startups, but I uh, somewhat grew up in the consumer electronics manufacturing industry mm-hmm. and have spent uh, a bulk of my career prior to uh, moving to the investment side uh, in the kind of consumer and enterprise uh, manufacturing, electronics manufacturing space. And so um, we started, as we kind of, as, as I was trying to say, we, we started to see a mega trend emer- emerging where, you know, CPUs are starting to get embedded into, you know, really every consumer, industrial, and, and medical device that are creating efficiencies and personalization that's never seen before. You know, so all hardware is becoming smart and connected. And, you know, traditional hardware devices are now being powered by software and use sophisticated sensors, computer vision, AI, and machine learning to collect valuable big data. Um, you mm-hmm. know, hardware's, hardware technology is no longer a one-time sale. And there are true opportunities for recurring revenue streams and uh, strong use cases for the blockchain, which is an emerging technology that everyone knows. Um, I, I would say looking at our first funds portfolio, uh, for example, two companies come to mind. Uh, one is a company called Sculpt, and that's actually a company in, uh, it straddles the medical device and the consumer health and wellness technology space. Um, I met the founder actually at an angel event and, and down here in Florida. Um, mm-hmm. And they were at a point where uh, they were generating revenues. They had this medical device uh, in the market, and this is going back to a time when uh, all of the um, activity trackers were just coming onto the market, the Fitbits and the Jawbones at that time. Right. And, yeah. you know, we weren't necessarily interested in those products. We felt that they were becoming commoditized. There were a lot of Me Too products, but what Indeed. was interesting to us about Sculpt was they were they were actually not just tracking activity they were they were measuring results and their focus is actually on quantifying muscle health and hmm. the origins were in a medical device 
that was being used by top pharma companies and researchers to quantify muscle health as it related to neuromuscular degenerative diseases. And mm-hmm. when I met them, they were looking to cross over into the consumer space as well because they saw a strong use case uh, for this same technology uh, on the consumer side. And so that was an interesting thesis for us. We got involved uh, very early on. Um, they've we, we led their... Uh, let me think about this. We led their uh, A. Uh, sorry, we we invest in the seed round, led the A round, and they subsequently, uh, you know, raised a B round. And you know, the people that participated after us, one was a, a larger West Coast venture capital firm, and another was uh, a large uh, Chinese uh, strategic uh, global manufacturing company. So, uh, you know, we felt like we were able to find a deal like that, get in sooner, and. Um, have, uh, and what is the go-to-market strategy for this company? Uh, excuse me? The go-to-market strategy? What is the go-to-market strategy? Hmm. So it, there are two sides of the business, and they are in um, – they started off in the medical device space, and um, they created a consumer product uh, that we helped them really, you know, down the supply chain to develop uh, price, source the, the components for the product – and um, ship it over to the U.S. Uh, they initially launched the product in the United States. Uh, they started initially online only. Um, we felt that it made the most sense to get feedback from uh, the early adopters, the core users, and be able to kind of iterate from Gen 1 to a Gen 2 product based on the early feedback we were getting from the heavy users. And mm-hmm. then they uh, subsequently launched the product uh, at some major retailers in the U.S., including Best Buy and Target, and um, uh, as well as a few overseas markets through, distrib- through uh, master distributors in those territories, uh, for example, mm-hmm. you know, for, for Western Europe, for example. Or the and UK. they're seeing good traction? Yeah, and they're seeing good traction. And what we've, you know, we, we've kind of learned that there is, you know, a, an actual very profitable space in between the uh, consumer market and the medical market. The consumer market, you know, it can be a very difficult market and somewhat more fickle, just very in general, not market. only related to, to this company. Um, but there, what we've seen, and this is actually part of our thesis for the new fund, is a real convergence between what used to be truly just medical device and what tr- used to just be, you know, a consumer product. Um, that this kind of people are taking um, more control of their personal health data, and there are more ways to collect data, maybe you know from a mass market device, uh, you know, an Apple Watch, for example, um, or a Fitbit, uh, and connect that uh, data back into a more robust uh, ecosystem that you know eventually your your doctor can track or may flag the potential for a heart attack, whatever it may be. And so um, this company in particular is actually um, actually kind of going in between those two markets right now and developing a, a new product uh, that works with uh, a lot of the uh, kind of more sports medicine, physical therapy, et cetera. That, that's a very interesting use case as well. Mm-hmm. Cool. And um, any other uh, example that you want to discuss? Um, I guess the other company um, 
that I could discuss. Uh, there are a few. Um, I, let me see. I can focus on um, maybe a company called Kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S. Mm-hmm. And they're a local uh, South Florida company and mm-hmm. uh, based in Miami, and they're in the computer vision space. So this isn't you know, a pure hardware tech company per se. Um, I had met the founder uh, going on goodness, uh, you know, four years ago, approximately. And uh, again, I I believe he was actually maybe speaking uh, at an event. And he, uh, at that point, the company was uh, was basically facial recognition solely focused on the HR space. So instead of a traditional uh, clock in, clock out, uh, punch card system, this was, you know, supposed to prevent fraud, and um, it was going to be used through facial recognition. And at that point, we just didn't feel like it was, you know, necessarily ready for true venture investment. But I like the entrepreneur. Um, he was very intelligent, very personable. Uh, you know, I respected what he was doing, and we kept in touch. And it was really over a four-year period that he finally came back to me and said, you know, look, I think we're ready now. And they built out the uh, technology, they built out the IP, and it was no longer just facial recognition, but it was also um, more of a human analytics uh, platform that combined facial recognition with emotional emotion analysis and crowd demographic analytics technology. So, um, you know, this was from a macro level, computer vision, something that we were interested in. But as he built out the technology, we saw a broader use case you know, ranging from uh, digital signage industry to autonomous vehicles. And um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, we got, uh, you know, we made an investment at that point. And, uh, you know, they've continued to grow the company. And actually, this this is somewhat unique. This is the first company in our portfolio that is actually, for their uh, B round, um, has gone out and uh, done an ICO. And, you know, wow. we're supportive of it. We're, you know, we're, we're still somewhat of a learning process, I think, for everyone involved. But um, they are just, you know, closed down the presale of a $30 million ICO that was 20 times oversubscribed uh, in a matter of weeks, you know. I, I don't understand why this is a good fit for an ICO. I mean, I, why, what is the token angle of this business? Well, there there are a couple of things. One, um, they they issue they are issuing both a security token, so it, this is you know a fully uh, regulatory compliant issuing, uh, similar mm-hmm. to an IPO. Uh, and two, uh, people are also receiving utility tokens, and the tokens are related to the database of uh, basically personal identity, uh, computer vision recognition that the company is building out and obviously as an investor we're you know determining the best pathway forward because we're preferred shareholders um, and what does that mean we have an opportunity to convert into a token that will be traded on uh, a marketplace or the security token so you know there's a potential chance for liquidity for us uh, very similarly to what happens in an IPO there will be a six-month lockup etc or we can decide to uh, hold our preferred equity in a company that you know has raised $30 million. And I think this really brings up a lot of interesting um, issues going forward as, as what it means 
for uh, early stage investors, you know, seed investors, um, because thus far the majority of people raising money in ICOs has, have been really just doing it through a white paper and it's a concept. Um, you know, what starts to happen when you have companies with real revenues that have been around for six or seven years doing it? And, uh, you know, is that a positive so, or a negative? So, you know, for- I'll tell you where, where I'm a little bit um, uncomfortable with what you're saying is that I don't see the token angle of it. I, I think your point is well taken that, you know, somebody with a proven business model and so forth doing an ICO is a more interesting scenario than a, you know, concept financing and concept ICO. All that is well taken. But why, I mean, why do I want tokens in this, you know, in this ecosystem, in this exchange? Well, that I, I is the question. I mean, there are certain businesses that are very token-friendly businesses that are yeah. where the tokens will naturally float around and, and change hands and, and create a natural liquidity process. And there are certain businesses that have that characteristic, and there are others that don't have that characteristic, which, in my opinion, should not be doing ICOs. So in this case, I'm struggling to understand why, what is the token angle of this? Well, I, and again, I think there are two... Uh, separate tokens that the company is uh, releasing. And again, I don't work for the company. (laughs) I am an investor in the company. I'm not on the board of the company. However, they are, I I think there are two things to look at. One is the security token. So what does the security token do? Uh, It is, you know, basically gives investors the ability to invest in the company and participate just as, you know, as it was, uh, say, investing in a piece of equity. And so that sounds more equity. like equity crowdfunding than, than ICO, right? Uh, from a security token perspective, I mean, that's how security tokens work. It is, you know, similar to, you know, a, an equity stake. I think from a utility token perspective, uh, that's, much different and you know a utility token gives the user um, you know an access for example to a database that is you know built on a blockchain architecture and so I think it's two different things and I think there are different values to different people within that yeah all right let's move on Um, if you look at the you know based on this investment thesis um, if you look at the last 12 months of deal flow, what trends are you seeing? What kind of connected hardware um, ideas that are uh, that are out there and that you think are interesting and emerge and are uh, throw light on emerging trends? Yeah, um, I, I, I do you want specific deals or general industry and then no, I general ideas, just more trends questions. Yeah, no, I, I think, again, we're starting to see technology uh, become more and more disruptive and maybe industries that weren't uh, as tech-dominated. So, for example, uh, agriculture. You know, we're seeing some interesting agricultural tech products. Uh, okay. Technology in the retail space um, in uh, the smart cities, obviously, is a, is a somewhat larger all-encompassing one. That includes construction technology, et cetera. Um, and I think, you know, obviously IoT, industrial IoT, and 
some of you know the related software that goes across some of these industries, such as whether it's computer vision or AR, VR. Um, we're starting to see um, you know a lot of different uh, deals through M&A acquisitions, for example, where non-traditional tech companies are starting to acquire tech companies, you know, whether it's, you know, just, I think it was announced yesterday, Walmart buying Spatial Land, which is a VR company, you know, mm-hmm. and I, you know, most people think that's going to be related to the in-store shopping experience, um, or, mm-hmm. you know, Target buying Shipt, or uh, I'm trying to think of another, uh, Mars, you know, buying Whistle, uh, which is, you know, a, a pet tech company, um, these are these are companies that maybe weren't doing tech acquisitions in the past. The Johnson and Johnson's another company that uh, recently has been doing some tech purchases. So we're starting to see companies from a, a variety of non-tech industries uh, either invest in or acquire uh, hardware tech companies and, and you know even soft, some software tech companies as well. And. Um you mentioned agriculture. What um, are we look? Are we talking about monitoring kinds of use cases? What's uh, what? What are the trends in in agriculture and in, in construction? What are what kinds of use cases are we seeing? Sure. So I mean, I I think in agriculture, for example, um, you know, we we've seen a substantial amount of companies doing monitoring and that can be for you know um soil quality you know moisture levels um others with different types of sensors that are are sensing for uh disease uh amount of sunlight crop yields things like that or things that affect crop yeah. yields and trying to gather big data and connected to the cloud so that they become somewhat more predictive because uh, they may um, sync up with what the weather patterns have been over the yep. time that they're collecting the data and then look forward to what is the weather forecast and what is what recommendations are being made to the farmers. And so we've seen companies in just general agriculture, uh, you know, in uh, viniculture, if I'm saying that correctly, the wine industry. Um, mm-hmm. We uh, have actually seen a, a company that uh, is focused more uh, very specifically uh, on the golf course industry, which is actually mm-hmm. one of the largest water users yes. in uh, the nation and in the world, um, yeah. and as well as, you know, agricultural chemical users. So, you know, it's one, obviously, they're trying to help uh, the golf course owners, the maintenance people, uh, you know, maintain the course as well as possible. But beyond that, uh, if they can, it's there is somewhat of an eco-friendly play there because they can maximize the water use efficiency uh, yeah. as well as the, the chemical use efficiency. So things like that are interesting to us. I, I think um, we've so it seen... It sounds like the overriding threads tying together all these use cases is there is a sensor that is monitoring a bunch of stuff, collecting data, throwing that into the cloud, and there is a analytics, predictive analytics kind of application um, exactly. on the software side. That's the exactly. general architecture. And, and, yeah, and there, there are infrastructure, there's infrastructure around that, whether it's the rollout of 5G and how quickly people think that will or will not happen and, you know, um, narrowband IoT and, and various 
uh, things that, that need to be put in place, um, you know, to determine whether is this uh, something that a, a farmer can um, be the owner of the usage of in a sense that they maybe either own the drone and it's an autonomous drone that they can put outside each morning or once a week and it can fly a, a predetermined path and bring back all the data or currently we see more of a model where it's almost more of a consulting basis where you have companies go into larger farms on a you know say a monthly basis or, or less and more of a consultant model that they bring the drone, they gather the data, and then they give a report to the farmer. And how does that, you know, continue to evolve over, over time? Yeah, very interesting. I'm going to ask you a slightly different question. Um, given what you are doing, it sounds like there, are ton, there must be tons and tons of niche use cases out there of your model. Um, and and I've, one of my observations is that we are in, you know, 2018 February, there's a ton of stuff that have already been built, and, and some of these use cases, especially when it comes to niche use cases, these are not necessarily all billion-dollar TAM use cases. Some of these are smaller opportunities, smaller niche opportunities, and you can build great businesses with one or two million dollars in investment, and, and these probably can be you know, good acquisitions for other larger companies for 10, 15 million dollars. And in some cases, maybe, you know, slightly larger, some slightly smaller. You could be investing five million, selling for 25, 30 million, or um, investing 252K to 500K and selling for five to 10 million. You know, somewhere in, you know, the, all that spectrum where there's a smaller TAM and, and smaller deal size. Is that something that's interesting to you? Um, I think. My non-answer is it depends, and let me try and give a better <laughs> answer than that. I think um, we are we we look for deals where we can be happy without needing a, a multi-billion-dollar IPO. So, for example, uh, if we can invest in a company at say a sub-10 or a sub-15 million dollar valuation, and that company is maybe sold for, you know, 70, 80, 100, 150 million, uh, you know, look, yes, we're very happy with that. In fact, you know, we feel that the majority of deals out there happen through M&A, not through IPOs, especially in, in the current landscape of investing where we see a lot of people playing at the seed and pre-seed stage, and then some much larger funds, for example, SoftBank is the biggest of the big, but uh, the you know traditional VC firms that have been extremely successful are raising larger and larger firm, uh, funds. Right. Yeah. So um, you know it, it's um, there, there is that kind of lack of investment in the middle, and so what does that mean? Uh, you know, for startups, are they either going to get to a point where uh, later stage investors come in and then the exit isn't going to happen until probably longer than it's traditionally been in the, or historically been simply because, uh, you know, someone investing a billion dollars or three billion dollars needs, you know, X times that uh, in order to be happy with their exit in the later stage. Um, Whereas, you know, for the earlier stage investors, especially at the seed stage, they may be perfectly happy with 
uh, you know, in a, a, an exit of you know 50 to 100 million. Now, you know, if you get to more uh, lesser than that, I think it really depends on the type of company and if it's a you know how niche of a market it is. We personally, you know, aren't going to look for a company that maybe we invest in it's a sub five million dollar valuation and, and look to exit it at a 20 or 30 or 50 million dollar plus. I, I think uh, we're playing a little bit later than that. Um, in fact, because we've seen a lot of investors pile into the pre-seed and seed stage, we're, we're actually looking at a lot of deals lately that, that are more seed to A. And I hesitate mm-hmm. to call them by specific stage names because I feel as though stages have changed. What was a typical seed or series A deal, say five years or 10 years ago, is uh, no longer a seed or A deal. It's shifted. You know, uh, series A deals are much earlier, or sorry, are much larger. Seed rounds are much larger, and you're seeing more pre-seed rounds happening. And I, and I think even beyond that, ge- geography uh, affects what is a seed or what is an A round. I, I can tell you an A round in the southeast is generally less than an A round in the valley or an A round in the Midwest or, or you know, Mid-Atlantic yeah. is, is also a lot less than an sure. A round in the valley. So, you know, those those are just labels, but, you know, we, we look more at valuation and the size of the round in general. Yeah, okay. Um, any other parting comments that you have for uh, our audience? No, uh, you know, again, I, I, I think um, we just really view uh, kind of connected hardware as the next mega trend in, in the sense that the smartphone powered the last generation of innovation. Um, we just see with rapid prototyping tools and small batch production, cheaper components, um, you know, uh, open APIs and SDKs, it's become a lot more cost efficient and faster to scale some of these connected hardware companies. Um, and there's also been a real recent boom in hardware-focused incubators and accelerators that are creating truly investable startups. Um, mm-hmm. We love you know, startups with uh, strong teams because in our mind, uh, you know, we, we need to obviously buy into the product or the technology that's being built uh, and it's great to see traction and have a large uh, total addressable market, um, but it's really up to the team to execute. So we focus uh, a lot on the team, and, and we love getting to know the founders and try and be value-add investors uh, wherever we can. Great. Thank you, Greg, for being on the show. Thank you, audience, for coming today, and uh, we hope to also see you at one of our free mentoring sessions um, on any week, we have them every week uh, online, or you can come see me if you're in Silicon Valley at one of our rendezvous. So one way or the other, hope to connect with you and actually work with you on your business on one of these sessions. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with another edition of the One Million by One Million podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs>